Right, well, we're walking through the tabernacle. We're up to Exodus chapter 30. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10, uh, particularly the altar of incense. And so I invite you to turn there if you'd like. We're also going to be spending some time in Revelation. Well, we'll kind of be all over the place, but some, Reve- uh, some passages in Revelation 5 and then uh, Revelation 8. Before we read Exodus uh, 30, verses 1 through 10, I uh, invite you to bow with me in prayer. Uh, our gracious God, we sit here in the new covenant, thousands of years from, removed from what we're about ready to read. Nonetheless, this is what you had revealed to the Israelites at this point in redemptive history, and it was very meaningful for them, but it is expanded in the new covenant. And so we ask that you would help us to discern what this meant for them, and then what it means for us. So that as believers in the new covenant, we can be those who are faithful, those who know how it is we can respond to this revelation that you give to us. And we pray that you would grant a greater and fuller obedience and a greater knowledge of and inclination to and obedience in our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it and you shall make two rings, two golden rings for it. Under its moldings on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. And you shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. This far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives tonight. Congregation of hope, uh, loved uh, sons and daughters of God, and everyone with us here, we're going to begin by just looking at the altar of incense itself. The passage we read is very simple. There's nothing difficult to understand in it at all. The altar of incense is about 18 inches by 18 inches. If you looked at it from the top, you'd see a square. It sits about uh, three feet tall, which is about two cubits. It's made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold because it's in the holy place, right? That's where the gold was, you're closer uh, to God. The only thing which was to be burned on it was incense. That was made uh, plain and clear. No drink offerings, no other offerings, just incense. And the altar was put in the holy place right in front of the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. You've got the bread of the presence, you've got the golden lampstand on one side, and if you walked right in the middle of the doorway, straight ahead, as you looked at that curtain, would be the altar of incense. And right across the curtain, right on the backside, literally feet away, or probably inches away, was the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. Now this was to be offered, incense was to be offered during the time of the morning and the evening sacrifice. So basically 
around the clock. You'd have it once in the morning, there would be incense offered, the holy place would be filled with smoke and all the smells of it. And then at night, during the time of the evening offering, uh, there would be incense offered again. And so there would always be this residue, uh, this smell of incense that was burning in the holy place. And what's interesting is once a year on the Day of Atonement, some of the, some of the blood of the sin offering was actually to be put on the horns of the altar of incense, much like it would have been put on the horns of the altar of sacrifice. So again, it's very simple, very basic, very straightforward. What in the world is going on? Well, if you look at Psalm 141 verse two, David writes, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So David there compares his prayer to the incense. And if you flip over to Revelation 5, 8, we're told this, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So Revelation, looking forward, interprets this altar of incense and all the incense offered it as a symbol, a picture of the prayers of God's people, which ascend before his throne in his very presence. And I want to spend some time taking a look at this imagery here. And of course, we're in the new covenant, so we're gonna expand that quite a bit. In particular, I want us to look at four things regarding prayer. Prayer is close fellowship with God, number one. Prayer is regular work, that's point number two. Prayer requires atonement, that's number three. And then prayer is heard in the heavens, that's point number four. So first, prayer is close fellowship with God. And I draw your attention to verse six of Exodus 30. You shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. That last little phrase, it would have been enough for the Lord to say, just put it in the holy place, right in front of the veil that's over the Ark of the Covenant. But I want you to put it right there, right near the place where I will meet with you. And so the altar of incense is not the Ark of the Covenant. It's not the mercy seat, but it is right next to the place where God will meet with his people. And the smoke rising up, representing the prayers of God's people, is right there next to the mercy seat. Now it's not all the way in, but it is really close, right? It is almost all the way in. Prayer is near to God, prayer is closeness to God, prayer is fellowship with God, prayer is conversation with God, prayer is coming very close to God, but this is the old covenant. This is the Mosaic covenant. If you flip over into the new covenant, things get way better. In the old covenant, the prayers were not symbolized in the most holy place. They were on the outside of the veil in the holy place. Prayers were important, but the mercy seat was something you could only go into once a year and only to put blood on it, not to pray on it. And the high priest actually had to take blood for himself and his family and for the Israelites. But when Jesus came, he made a way into the holy of holies so that now our prayers are in the throne room. Hebrews 4 at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, skipping down to verse 16, because we have a great high priest, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy 
and find grace to help in time of need. Well, in the new covenant, when we pray because of our great high priest, we're all the way in the throne room. Now remember the Ark of the Covenant signified God's footstool, right? It was in the shape where God reigns. So when you go into the Holy of Holies, you're where God's throne is. And Hebrews four tells us that because we have a great high priest now in Jesus in the new covenant, that we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. In other words, we're in. Prayer in the new covenant is where we come all the way in to God's very presence. And you wanna know something even more striking that when Jesus was asked by his disciples, Lord, can you teach us to pray? He began teaching them to pray, what? Our Father. This is incredible. Not our judge, not our creator, not our majestic, infinite, way out there, sovereign Lord who is just untouchable and with whom we can have no relationship and whose decrees we just bear with as they unfold randomly. No, our Father in heaven, this incredible closeness. Now it was symbolized in the old covenant tabernacle, but in the new covenant, this is the kind of closeness that just made, especially the Jews who really reverenced God, very uncomfortable. Our Father? Yes, we pray now, our Father in heaven. Spurgeon had a really helpful way of putting it. A child, even though he is erring, always expects his father will hear what he has to say. All of my sinfulness does not invalidate my claim. If you be my father, then you love me. If I be your child, then you will regard me. And poor though my language be, you will not despise it. And so prayer is so intimate in the new covenant because we have this incredible high priest that we can actually go all the way in and call God our father. And the lang family language is used. We're his children and he's our father. Now, what does this mean? Just a few things I wanna to touch on before we go to the next aspect of prayer. Prayer is intimacy with God as our father. We have, when we found God through Jesus Christ, we found a permanent father. This is very different than pagan religions and people who are part of pagan religions would have prayed. Leon Morris actually comments on this. The heathen lives in a world crowded with gods. All these gods are jealous and grudging and hostile. They must all be placated and a man can never be sure that he has not omitted the honor due to some of the gods. To find that there is but one God and that he is to be called Father is a very liberating discovery. We need no longer shiver before a horde of jealous gods. We can rest in a Father's love. So prayer again, beloved, is this incredible element of the Christian life where we come to God as our Father, not as those who are just scared out of our minds that we might say something wrong or that we haven't done enough to please Him, but those who are loved children a second aspect that I wanna highlight is that God is more caring as a father than any nursing mother. Isaiah 49, 15, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the sons of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Again, just tremendous love that God has for us as his children, and we get to enjoy that in prayer. Something that was helpful to me, a third element regarding this closeness is that God is not our president, he's our father. Uh, President Joe Biden has two living kids, Hunter and Ashley. To the watching world, 
Uh, and to us as citizens, he's just the president of the US. To access him is limited, right? You have to go through uh, tons of searching and scrutinization if you wanna get close to him and operate close to him. But Hunter and Ashley Biden, they can just show up whenever they want. Why? Because sure, he's the president, but look, he's my dad, right? He's just dad, he's our father. We can, we can go whenever we want. In fact, Ashley Biden said, we have a rule still today that no matter where dad is, no matter what meeting he's in, if one of the kids call, you have to let him know. And so too at work, you know, we might be a CEO, we might be a manager. Uh, if we're a, a dad, we might uh, be highly regarded by certain people in certain circles, but when our kids come, it's just dad, right? That's, that's what we are, and we are immediately available to them. That is how it is with our Father in heaven, beloved. We're his children. We have immediate access to him. It is almost beyond thought that through Jesus Christ, we have immediate access to the Father who is in heaven, the one who reigns over all of the universe. And then one more item I wanna highlight regarding this closeness is that no Christian ought to pray like a second-class citizen. There aren't favored sons and favored daughters, and then kind of the middle of the road sons and daughters, and then the sons and daughters who are barely part of God's household, right? There's one class, a son and daughter, and God is our father. And so every one of us as believers can come before God, not as second or third class believers, but as those who have full access to God through Jesus Christ. Well, the second item I wanna highlight about prayer is not just the intimacy, but prayer is regular work. In verses seven and eight, I wanna highlight this. Uh, Exodus 30, Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it every morning when he dresses the lamps he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. So twice a day, the morning and evening sacrifices being offered, the lamps need to be tended to, uh, filled up, lit, whatever the case may be. And when Aaron does this regular work with the lamps, he's already in the holy place. He's called to offer incense on this uh, twice a day. Now this is significant because it tells us right from the beginning that prayer was to be a regular part of the priest's life. It was a regular part of their work. Didn't matter what they felt like, didn't matter how the nation was doing, this was to be the regular part of their work when the tabernacle was set up. And it's interesting that when Jesus, the true high priest, comes into the world, we discover that prayer was a regular primary part of his life. Mark 1.35, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Luke 5, 16, Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus said to Simon, Luke 22, 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus, all throughout his ministry, is acting as this priest who continues to pray for God's people. And then in John 17, 20, in his high priestly prayer, we're told some rather astonishing words. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's you and me, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Jesus did the regular work of praying even for us some 2,000 years ago. That is staggering. And what's more is after he was crucified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, 
He's doing what is sometimes called his session or his interceding work. And Hebrews 7.25 says this about Jesus praying for us. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, always praying for us. And Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Whoa. So the high priest, the priests on duty, they're offering incense, which is emblematic of prayers going up. That's part of their work. Jesus comes into the world. He's busy praying. If anybody could have gotten off without praying, it would have been him. He's God in the flesh. and He's praying this faithful work as a priest. And that means that some of the work of priests is praying. But there's a further extension on this, and that has to do with us and our prayer life. Because Peter says in 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Whoa. Okay, so we have priests in the Old Testament. We've got Jesus, the ultimate high priest, who continues to intercede for us. But then we're also involved in this work of prayer, right? We're also involved in praying to God and doing the work of it, which is why the Heidelberg Catechism in question and answer 116 says, why do Christians need to pray? Because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us. That's an astonishing claim, right? It's the most important part of all that God requires. And they base that on a couple passages, Psalm 116 verses 12 to 13. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? What shall I do with my life now that the Lord saved me? What am I supposed to do? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. And then down in verse 17, I will call on the name of the Lord. And if you want a new covenant verse for that, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without, we all know it, right? Ceasing. Don't stop praying. That's prayer as a regular part of our work. It was depicted in the old covenant. Jesus modeled it perfectly. And now we, as God's people, get the privilege of being part of this regular work of prayer. And I wanna spend a little time here trying to bring this home to impress upon us the importance of prayer in our lives before we look at uh, a couple more things. We're called to pray regularly, to, you could argue, even schedule prayer into our lives. Not that it's gotta be on the calendar, but somehow prayer has to be a regular part of our lives if we're going to be those who pray without ceasing. Corey ten Boom, don't pray when you feel like it. Have an appointment with the Lord and keep it. A man is powerful on his knees. Augustine's mother, Monica, famous for her regular prayer. Uh, she continued to pray for Augustine over and over. I didn't know this, but she actually would relocate and kind of follow him around and track him down too. And uh, something that we're told about uh, Monica in Augustine's Confessions is Monica says, there was only one reason and one reason only why I wished to remain a little longer in this life. And it was to see you, her son Augustine, become a Christian. So she just kept praying. Again, faithful prayer. It's, it's not hard to understand, right? It may be hard to implement, hard to do, hard to be regular in, but the work of prayer is not hard to understand. Samuel Chadwick on the path of prayer said this, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. 
He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our wisdom. But when we pray, he trembles. Just a tremendous thought. Always strikes me every time I read that. Yeah, the devil would love it if we, as God's people, would do everything except the obey the commandment, pray without ceasing. I'll pray when I get around to it, but not without ceasing. And I'll pray. It's like number 10 on my priority list as far as Christian obedience goes. But number one, ah, no, we're, we're going to knock it down. The devil would love that. One commentator put it like this on prayer. The great people of the earth today are the people who pray. I do not mean those who talk about prayer, nor those who say they believe in prayer, nor those who explain prayer, but I mean those who actually take the time to pray. They have not time. It must be taken from something else. That something else is important, very important and pressing, but still less important and pressing than prayer. There are people who put prayer first and group the other items in life schedule around and after prayer. These are the people today who are doing the most for God in winning souls and solving problems and awakening churches in supplying both men and money for mission posts in keeping fresh and strong their lives far off in sacrificial service on the mission field where the thickest fighting is going on. And let me just ask you before we move on to prayer requires atonement, will you pray? Do we have regular time set aside during the day to pray? It's gonna look different for all of us, right? Some of us may have a couple minutes. That's what we do. Some of us may have five, some 15, some of us might have hours. But do we prioritize the regular work of prayer? It's always been part of the life of God's people, always. And now even more so in the new covenant, it's part of our life. Is prayer something Corey Ten Boom said this, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? <laughs> is it in our lives as just something we use in case of an emergency, tire blew out, got to get to work, better pull it out? Or is it something that we are regularly using on a daily basis to call upon the Lord's name? It should be a regular part of our work. The third thing I want to look at regarding prayer is that it requires atonement, verse 10. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So on the day of atonement, once a year, the high priest would enter the most holy place with blood for his own sins and then for the sins of Israel. And he would also put blood on the horns of the altar of incense. It's a vivid portrayal that prayer, the basis of it, actually is in sacrifice. It's an atonement. In other words, God's not going to hear prayers. God's not going to deal with prayers unless blood has been put on the altar, on the horns of the altar of incense. And centuries later, Jesus Christ was on the cross and he was saying some very remarkable things, okay? He was saying things like, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And if you're standing here, you might think, well, who does Jesus think he is? And then something really significant happened. Remember, Old Covenant background, there's no way to get into the most holy place. It takes blood to even have our prayers ascend to the Lord. Once a year, we have to be reminded that prayers require atoning work. And then Jesus is on the cross, Matthew 27, 50. Father, forgive them. And then Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain tore from top to bottom. Like there is no access into the most holy place, but God tore the curtain. 
at Jesus' death, God from the heavens tore it. It's impossible. You could have lined up 20 horses on each side, loaded with chains and ropes and told them to pull. And in a thousand years, they'd never pull this thing apart. That thick. And yet not from the bottom up, but from the top down, God made a declaration that on account of the atoning work of my son, no longer the blood of a bull or goat on the day of atonement, on account of his blood, you can now come all the way in. On account of his work, you have full access to me in relationship and also in prayer, which is why Hebrews 10, 19 says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Like the author of Hebrews is standing back there on the day of crucifixion, (laughs) marveling, yep, right through the curtain. He did this with his flesh. He opened the way up for us. When Jesus offered his own blood on the altar, it permanently opened the way all the way into the Holy of Holies. Not just as the basis for prayers ascending to God in the holy place, but Jesus offered blood, which lets us go all the way into the throne room. Without Jesus, there is no access to God as our Father. There's only a request made to a judge. There's only a creature asking the Creator for something. But in Jesus Christ, we have access to God as our Father. Jesus Christ has made a way, which is why all the time we pray in what, right? For Jesus' sake and Jesus' name, somewhere in there, we're we're pleading Jesus' work. It's, of course, a phrase we may just repeat without thinking about it. What we're acknowledging as believers is that, Lord, I have no reason to think that you will hear anything that I have just offered to you, anything that I've cried out to you for, any praise I've offered. I have no reason to think that you will accept any of it except in your son, because he's made a way, and now I can call you father. And then finally, I want to look at prayer is heard in uh, the heavens. There's a passage in Revelation 8, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read it and then just think about it for a moment. It deals with the incense combined with prayer. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, now remember there were only seven seals on the scroll, People were looking for someone to open it. They were really discouraged. And then they found the lamb who's worthy. When the lamb opened the last seal, the seventh seal, which means that after this is opened, the will of God that's in the scroll is going to be unfolded. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. So I want you big picture here catch what's going on. The angel has the prayers of the saints, has the incense. And those prayers of the saints are part of what affects the lightnings, the thunderings, the crashings on the earth, right? The prayers of the saints are involved in the thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. It's part of what the angel threw onto the earth. So our prayers, which come from the earth... (laughs) 
arise into heaven, they're filling the bowls. They're actually part of the unfolding of the scroll of God's divine decree. Matthew Henry put it this way, these prayers that were thus accepted in heaven produced great changes upon the earth. The same angel that in his censer offered up the prayers of the saints in the same censer took of the fire of the altar and cast it into the earth and this presently caused strange commotions, voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. These were the answers God gave to the prayers of the saints and tokens of his anger against the world and that he would do great things to avenge himself and his people of their enemies. And now all things being thus prepared, the angels discharge their duty. These were the answers God gave to the prayers of the saints and tokens of his anger against the world and that he would do great things to avenge himself and his people of their enemies. Oh, but that's tremendous. Our prayers are somehow used by God for the unfolding of his eternal decree, the salvation of people on this earth and also the judgments of people on this earth. Now, if you ask me how in the world our prayers made in time can be included and involved in the unfolding of God's unchangeable decree that was made before creation, I'll tell you, I don't know, right? There are a host of people smarter than you and me who've tried to unravel the rope and untie the knot. How does God fit prayer? How does prayer fit into God's decree? How does God use prayer to accomplish a decree that's unchangeable? How does God use human prayer to accomplish his divine decree? I must admit that my concern is not that either of us figures it out. My concern, and I believe God's concern for us, is not that we figure out how our prayers can make a difference with God who has already determined everything, but our concern should be that our prayers, that our prayers, make a difference. And so we should pray and make requests and ask and knock and seek. In other words, ours isn't to be smarter than God or wiser than God, but to obey him and thus to pray diligently and expectantly. Why is prayer so important? Because God uses our human prayers for the unfolding of his divine decree, for the accomplishment of what he has written in the scroll, which only the lamb can open. And to encourage us in prayer, I want to mention a few passages from the Bible, which are passages that tell us how that prayer was answered. Daniel 12 or 10, 12. Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Again, God's decreed everything, right? But in some unspeakable way, Daniel's prayer caused the angel to come to him. Acts 10.3, Cornelius prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror, right? Thinking judgment. What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And later in the same chapter, Acts 10.30, we're told four days ago about this hour as Cornelius is talking to Peter. I was praying in my house at the ninth hour and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard. And this was the beginning of the gospel going out to the Gentiles. Peter's understanding, click the gospels for the Gentiles. Cornelius' prayer was part of the apostles taking the gospel out to the Gentiles. Whoa. But God's been planning that since the days of Abram, right? And yet here's this man, Cornelius, praying, and he's part of the process. Tremendous, beloved. Acts 12, 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. 
Some people would say, if God wants Peter out of prison, he'll get him out of prison on his own. Peter will come out. No, no need to pray for it, right? <laughs> the church is praying, and Peter gets out of prison. In fact, they're surprised that he's even out. In James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So those are examples of prayer that's answered. And because prayer is so powerful, even the Apostle Paul over and over requests prayer. 2 Corinthians 1.11, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Romans 15.30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I might be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Philippians 1.19, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Let me conclude with just a couple quotes. Jonathan Edwards, there is no way that Christians in a private capacity can do so much to promote the work of God and advance the kingdom of Christ as by prayer. Prayer's that big. Charles Spurgeon, the power of prayer can never be overrated. If a man can but pray, he can do anything. He who knows how to overcome with God in prayer has heaven and earth at his disposal. In some unspeakable way, our prayers made possible to our Father by Jesus Christ having made a way are actually what God uses to accomplish the building of his kingdom. What power, what privilege, beloved, that you and I get to be part of this. Let's pray.